0: Next on Reboot Your Life. The housing solution for vets after rehab. Then, I think sometimes that's why we're here, is to tell each other the truth.
1: Four-time Oscar
0: nominee, Ethan Hawke on spirituality. Then, a recovery story from near
1: death to getting back the life she loves.
2: It's next. From Riverside Recovery, it's Reboot Your Life. Experience the ultimate reboot of your journey. Start anew and rediscover you. Transform your story. Rewrite your life. It's Reboot Your Life with Carrie Harrison and Ashley Neal.
1: And from the Riverside Recovery Studios in Tampa, Florida, Carrie Harrison here with you along with Ashley Neal. And thanks for listening to Reboot Your Life where we help you get back the life you love. Well, it's no secret that our veterans are particularly susceptible to drug and alcohol problems which can lead to homelessness and a disconnect from the care that's available to them. In some large cities, there are thousands of unhoused vets and limited solutions available. For many veterans, the issue is simply affordable and accessible housing upon returning to civilian life. And it could be from financial constraints or limited resources, difficulties, transitioning to civilian careers. Well, let's look at an exceptional problem solver and thought leader. And I'm talking about Mike Schmidt, a remarkable entrepreneur with over 40 years of international startup experience in tech and sales and marketing, and now what's called tiny housing. And he's based in Colorado. And Mike Schmidt, I want to welcome you to the show.
3: Good morning, Kerry. A pleasure to be with you.
1: Glad to have you here, my friend. Can you uh, elaborate, Mike Schmidt, on how tiny houses could address the specific challenges faced by veterans in accessing housing during these times?
3: Well, I'll tell you, as you know, low-cost, affordable, single-family housing is... uh, pretty much a pipe dream in this country there even in Colorado we're probably 120,000 houses shy of single-family allotments needed to meet the population but veterans have a tremendous challenge as they transition out of the military not only with jobs and income but but being able to afford huge you know down payments for single-family housing even with VA a lot of times it's not enough to cover it And, and again even with my company VSS uh, that we formed about nine years ago here in Colorado Springs to be active in the local uh, community for supporting veterans and their families. The challenge is the, the sheer supply of single family housing at an affordable rate. And, Carrie, uh, you know, you don't just jump into a McMansion uh, when you start transitioning out of the military and getting a new job, it just doesn't right. happen. So, we need a solution with tiny homes that can bring the cost down of the construction of the tiny homes, but a very special uh, ability. Maybe we put them into tiny home communities, or what we like to call a VSS—a Veteran Village, a VSS Village. So, twenty or thirty tiny houses in a cluster, and wraparound services around that.
1: So, you're talking about uh, creating—we'll call it a community of interest with shared mm-hmm. amenities that cater to the unique needs of veterans who are returning to civilian life. Some of whom are going to be disabled. Uh, they may have. Uh, emotional issues, they may have alcohol and drug addiction. Uh, all of this is going to be handled
3: in some way? Yeah, that's one of the reasons uh, I formed BSS back in uh, 2015 with uh, Tammy Donaldson. She's an ex-army, uh, 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 mil- uh, ex-Army veteran, and she actually had a passion for supporting veterans. She did about 10,000 veterans over her 20 years while she was serving. So about uh, back in 2015, we formed BSS to create a solution where she could deliver Per wraparound-like services, you know, uh, support for veterans to get their medical benefits increased, find housing, find food if they had emergency situations. And then I would focus on the tiny home side and looking at how can we address, you know, the affordability factor for tiny houses and be able to bring the cost down and be able to do this in a VSS village context. So we really kind of hit it off and started pursuing this model.
1: Yeah, there's an issue right now where uh, we have in some big cities like Los Angeles, where the weather is pretty good year round. So it tends to have 80,000 homeless people that's or unhoused. That's just the number that they're officially counting. It's probably more up to 120,000 and 25% happen to be veterans. And there's no toilet, there's no this, there's no that, there's no privacy, there's no sense of any kind of self importance or hope or reason that people feel to grab toward a better future. And I think this sounds like a real solution here. Are there initiatives or programs in place that ensure veterans have access to these, your innovative housing solutions?
3: Well, not not just myself, but there are a number of organizations around the country that have put together uh, veteran villages. So it's not a new idea. It's It's the implementation cost of doing it. And it depends upon what kind of housing you build. You can build, you know, shed type uh, homes that have no kitchen or no bathroom facilities and then put uh, many of them on pads in a a facility outdoors and then be able to build a building that supports shared showers and bathroom and kitchen facilities. And a lot of the communities don't like those. They kind of, you know, not in my backyard type of a model. But then if you actually want to build a real tiny house, that what we would call a transitional home. Yes, you wanna have a kitchen and bathroom and it absolutely meets the dignity needs of veterans and their families. So in Texas, they've got a number of initiatives up and running that are quite successful. Uh, Some in Florida, some in California, uh, some in Oregon that actually pioneered this uh, well over a decade ago. But the real real challenge, however, is how do you produce a facility that can have 20 or 30 homes and the wraparound services and address what I believe is one of the biggest challenges is the provisioning of utilities. Because what you've got to do is you've got to be able to make it sustainable long term. And a lot of times if you're building traditional stick homes with bathroom and kitchen facilities, you know, it gets to be very expensive. And And that's why we think that tiny homes is a way to be able to bring that cost down.
1: We've got, say here in the state of Florida, we have a mandate that 15, 1, 5% of all houses need to be solarized at some point. And so there's a rush to solarize. But a lot of people uh, who are maybe way older don't really understand it and think it's I don't know what they think it is, but uh, it's called cheap and really cheap electricity forever that the sun makes and your bills go down. Uh, I understand that you would be taking advantage of some of these uh, federal mandates, state mandates uh, that would also bring the cost. You mentioned utilities, which is everybody's big bad bugaboo when I, on a monthly basis, that would be, a, a, you'd be able to use modern technology to make these veterans even more comfortable.
3: Well, and that's where uh, part of the innovation of VSS, and we started talking about this concept years ago, was to create a VSS village of 20 or 30 of these tiny homes that are produced in a factory and they're put on a trailer so you can wheel them in and then integrate those trailers with a microgrid above ground that could facilitate electricity, gas, water, and waste. And yes, solar definitely plays a big role, but a lot of times people don't know the secret about solar in deep cycling those batteries. It's great when you got the sun out during the day, but at night, you got to hit those batteries. And if you're not trickle charging them with another source, you tend to have to replace them. So with our model, we've got alternative uh, power sources that can do that, provide primary power for the community, but leverage and load balance the solar arrays that we put on top of each one of the homes. So yeah, there's a lot of innovations in the microgrid area that we're now looking at and want to apply in the standards area. For being able to create tiny homes that facilitate microgrid attachments.
1: Carrie Harrison with you, along with Ashley Neal. This is Reboot Your Life. We're talking to Mike Schmidt. He's in Colorado. He's a thought leader, an entrepreneur with over 40 years of international experience in tech sales, marketing, and now tiny housing. Mike is CEO of Ensemble Adventures or Ventures, a venture ventilator for business development, and one of the forces behind creating housing for our veterans, coast to coast. Let's talk for a second, Mike, about the experience that veterans would be able to expect in one of these things, uh, having their own place, their own uh, bathroom facilities, and customizable to deal with their individual disabilities. What is the experience like
3: for a veteran? Well, one of the things that we've seen in a number of the villages around the country Uh, That these facilities are handicap accessible. So they got to be on the ground floor, uh, either accessible by decking infrastructure. Uh, And that's one of the things that we like about our microgrid approach. Uh, We would actually build an interface or an infrastructure around those homes and make it easy for handicap. But also, you got to have shared, what we call wraparound services. So, literally, a shared facility that could be used for kitchen, for meetings, for behavioral health sessions, therapy sessions, and, you know, you really have to have that support infrastructure for these communities of veterans. And we've seen operators, you know, in St. Louis and Colorado and Oregon that have kind of put together these unique shared service environments for veterans and their families. And in many cases, a lot of those start to extend in the general population requirements, because as you know, our homeless challenges across the country are just, you know, mushrooming now and and the the home building industry, the single family home builders, the developers are just not keeping up. So we really need this third rail of housing. So instead of HUD manufactured housing or modular prefab housing, we kind of have this tiny home structure or strategy right in the middle that could bring to the table this lower cost and attainable model.
1: So let's talk about cost because I think that's the first thing. Well, any it's America, so it's how much? You go to buy something, you go on Amazon, how much? So, you know, if you were to buy a manufactured home here, a modular house or something, I mean, the cheapest thing you could probably find anywhere might be 15 grand in the middle of the boondocks somewhere, an abandoned trailer. How much is one of these things going to run
3: and who's going to pay for it? Well, you know, that's, a, that's kind of the $10,000 question. I wrote an article back for Curb Magazine back in 2017 when I was the Tiny Home Industry Association Business Development Director, and actually when I got involved heavily in the tiny home industry. The real costs of tiny homes, and, and it really depends upon the quality of materials you build the size, et cetera. Most tiny homes are under 400 square feet. And if it's on a trailer, it's got to be eight and a half feet wide uh, by, you know, 20 or 30 feet long. And it can't be taller than 13 and a half feet because that's the bridge standard across the country for a trailer. So the key, it really is, is in the materials. It's in the f- the accoutrements, if you will, the appliances that are provisioned. Now you can build a, a, a totally suitable, you know, what I would call a, a, a transitional tiny home for a family of four, two adults, a couple kids, sleeping lofts, a main bed, kitchen, bathroom—you could literally build it for under thirty thousand dollars in materials cost. But you mm. might sell it for fifty to sixty thousand. Then you have on the other spectrum, you got people that are servicing the RV park uh, and resort market. Th- these guys are building eighty thousand dollars, hundred thousand dollars, opulent tiny homes with all. You know, huge materials, you know, granite uh, countertops, expensive. Uh, West, you know, West Hollywood, food.
1: California is they call the micro housing. It's the That's same the, thing. And exactly. they're doing it for, for elderly people who don't want to mm-hmm. have a big yard and a lawn to mow and all the rest of it. It just kind of right. handles their basic needs. There is an interest there, as I imagine, there would be a lot of well, well-meaning people with big hearts that. Uh, would want to make private investment and help make this happen. So we're not looking for the government to fund this. Maybe the VA would have some interest too, but I think people could get involved and actually help make these
3: communities exist, right? Well, and this is really the area that I'm zoning in on, not only in my standards work with ASTM International and focusing on these standards for tiny home communities and microgrids, and then how tiny houses can be built on trailers as well as on foundations and potentially be movable between those two modalities. See, the real challenge, Carrie, is that single-family housing is a really expensive business. they got a thing called Planned Unit Developments that every community goes through when they build single-family housing you know, Puds. tracks. PUDs. PUDs, exactly. And the planned unit development model spans multiple years, many millions of dollars to prep an area for single-family housing to bring the utility infrastructure in. This is a real serious, kind of broken model that's a lot of people don't understand why it takes so long to bring housing to the market. What our approach is going to be, we wanna focus on not only communities of interest, but there are methodologies of creating business structures like using L3Cs and developing private membership uh, alignments to put tiny home communities on private property, mm-hmm. and then allow private investors to be able to buy industry standard tiny houses that have been voluntarily consensus standards in the builds. We want to meet the health and safety requirements of the communities, but we want to have the ability to do multi-family housing on private property, 20 or 30 at a time, that not only we're buying the standard tiny hill, but we've got the microgrid solutions and the innovative solar, the innovative fuel cells, the waste management. We bring all that together into packages that are pre-designed, pre-engineered, and then pre-certified so that you don't have to have Uh, inspectors inspect every single bill that you do it's part of a modular package it's almost the same way that we build cars A, a car manufacturer builds a car design and it gets signed off by the government and that car can show up on a lot across the country and you can go in and buy it well why the hell aren't we we selling homes the same way we can build them modularly in a factory and then we figure out innovative ways to hook them up with utilities to bring the cost down we could be having a home building renaissance in this country if we just take a little bit different approach and not have to keep using the same old worn out methodology yeah. uh, that we're face using in each market. This is great. This is great because
1: this problem affects every single person of the 370 million people living in the United States. Everybody's dealing with some kind of housing issue, whether they're dealing with mortgages or this or that, or trying to make decisions. And You know, we're finally paying attention to our veterans. Uh, This is why this is such an interesting topic on Reboot Your Life, because not only do we help them at Riverside Recovery, you know, uniquely, probably the leader, certainly in the state of Florida and much in the South and the Southeast, where direct help is given. And now you're looking at direct help with housing. So you can help mind, body, spirit, physicality, and life on life's terms for real people. And that's awesome. How do we follow you and uh, learn more about your tiny housing, Mike?
3: Well, one of the things uh my uh, my websites ensembleventuresinc.com, uh you can also hit it with ensembleventuresllc.com, uh, but also veteran support solutions uh, That's veterans-support-solutions.com. And you kind of get a little bit of the history of what VSS has been talking about in our what we call VSS villages or veteran villages for veterans and their families. So there's a little bit more information there. I am gonna be launching a new site uh, for uh, developing communities. Uh, I have uh, purchased a company that's been at the forefront of L3C development for well over a decade, uh, kind of as a tribute to the original founder. I'm not ready to announce it quite yet. Uh, We'll be bringing the website up here within the next 30 days, but I might break that on one of your other shows, Gary. Uh, But this is a, a community development model How do we develop these communities? If we can get all the standards sorted out and then we can start building them in this fashion, how do we then put them into communities and make them work?
1: A question soon to be answered. In Colorado is Mike Schmidt, thought leader, entrepreneur with over 40 years of international experience in tech and sales and marketing, and now tiny housing, a solution for millions and particularly appealing to our veterans as they come back and try to transition into civilian life where housing has been impossible. No longer so it looks in the future. Mike, CEO of Ensemble Adventures, Venture Ventilator for Business Development.
0: Coming up. I kind of think sometimes that's why we're here is to tell each other the truth and, and tell each other stories and make each other think to try to figure out what the hell's happening.
4: Riverside Recovery of Tampa was created to offer state-of-the-art treatment options to people suffering from addiction. The model was developed to meet clients and their families where they are at and provide them with the tools and education needed so that they can achieve long-term recovery. No two people are the same and no two people have the same experience with addiction. And it is for this reason that we tailor each treatment plan to the unique needs of each individual. Located alongside the Hillsborough River in the heart of Tampa, Riverside Recovery offers the full continuum of care. And what that. means is that we offer medical detoxification, residential care, day treatment, intensive outpatient and outpatient levels of care. The program at Riverside is focused on high quality clinical care offered in a safe, comfortable and serene environment where everyone feels empowered to change the course of their lives. The stigma that surrounds addiction continues to be high on the list of reasons that people do not seek help. At Riverside Recovery, we are working to change the narrative and empower people to recognize addiction as a disease, not a moral failing. We can recover, and we do, as evidenced by the thousands of people who have taken that courageous first step in asking for help. The staff at Riverside understand what it's like to recover. In fact, over 75% of our staff are in long-term recovery. If you or someone you know needs help and are ready to seek treatment, call Riverside Recovery of Tampa at 1-800-871-5440. That's 800-871-5440. You can learn more about the treatment we provide at rrtampa.com. Again, that's RRTampa.com.
5: It's our Reboot Your Life Hotline. We've set up a dedicated phone number so you can leave your comments, thoughts, and feedback whenever you'd like. It might even get on the air. Maybe you have a story that you feel needs to be shared or told. So, get it off your chest. Text or call our Reboot Your Life Hotline at 323-8-REBOOT. That's 323-8-REBOOT
3: you can tweet us anytime on x at reboot your
5: life
2: life 2.0 it's your life and your reboot it's reboot your life with carrie harrison and ashley neal i
0: kind of think sometimes that's why we're here is to tell each other the truth and, and tell each other's stories and make each other think to try to figure out what the hell's happening Ethan
1: Hawke, predestination this is a Calvinist term. I mean, you can sort of imagine. Mm-hmm. And God hath declared what your future... Mm-hmm. You know, using the my ancestors yes. from the good old yeah. days. And yet, here you and your tra- time travel world here, it challenges that whole
0: notion of free will versus God's will, right? Well, it's a really old thought, um, and it's a really interesting idea. I mean, one of the things that I love about this movie is... It has the spark of genius to it, um, because from Robert Heinlein, it's such an interesting idea. I mean, whether you're talking about free will in the Christian sense of whether God's will or our own will, or whether you're talking about it in the Buddhist sense, which is the interconnectedness of man and that we're all actually each other's mothers and fathers throughout time. You know, which is a very, you know, in, in Buddhist philosophy, if we're all reincarnated so much, we're all actually totally related. We're actually one living organism through time, right? And we all are time traveling because our life energy is continuous, right? So in Highline, none of this stuff is lost on Highline. And, uh, and to boot, to bono, is addressing the whole masculine feminine energy of it all. Of the self in in a way that we all are both masculine and feminine
1: when i see with gore vidal in uh, gattaca. gattaca
0: yeah i remember when i was younger and doing gattaca how prescient i thought that film would be and in fact is about you know genetic engineering and stuff and i, I think predestination would be a great double bill with gattaca you know as a double feature at the drive-in one night <laughs> A gift given to the world through a predestination paradigm.
1: Here you are, basically a time cop. Mm-hmm. Um, you're in charge of where we've been and where we go. That endless, weird, psychotic
0: loop. These are all these wild ideas that are set inside a, a, a genre movie, you know? And that's why I. I don't know, I, I flipped out over it. That's the genius of it.
1: It's mm-hmm. got the, it yings you and yangs you <laughs> yeah. at the same time. Well said, yeah. Not to mention, sci-fi, what a great platform to talk about the nature of humanity. Why are we here, where
0: are we going, what's the point? See, if you, that's what I think too, because if you start talking about all these philosophical ideas about reincarnation, death, predestination, Calvinist, Christian, whatever it is, it, you know, everybody starts to get a little sleepy. But if you make it sci-fi, it's actually really interesting. We work for an organization whose primary purpose is reshaping wrongdoings. You have skills you've never had the chance to use, and I can give you that chance. Follow me right in here. Here we go. So what is it? It's a time machine. And I, I've, I've always loved that about science fiction, whether it's Kurt Vonnegut or whether it's H.G. Uh, Wells. You know, when as a kid and you'd read about, you know, the Martians attacking or whatever, and he starts to think about your place in the universe. <laughs> that's the nature of art, isn't it? Well, for me, that's that's what I believe in. You know, is I kind of think sometimes that's why we're here, is to tell each other the truth and, and tell each other's stories and make each other think to try to figure out what the hell's happening. <laughs>
1: It is Reboot Your Life. Carrie Harrison with you, along with Ashley Neal from the Riverside Recovery Studios in Tampa, Florida. Thanks for listening to Reboot Your Life, where we help you get back the life you love. You know, we talk a lot about life hacks for recovery, about resilience, battling addiction. And it's wonderful when we get to bring you firsthand stories of human experience. With me right now, sitting next to me right now, is Willow, just Willow. And Willow is an accomplished person, and it's important to hear when you climb the ladder of success, and sometimes you go down a rung, but you get back up, and how you get back that life you love. And Willow, I want to welcome you to Reboot Your Life.
5: Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here.
1: We're glad to have you here, too. And uh, you're going to tell your story a little bit so that people can relate and connect and find out that there is a way out once they get in, in the place they don't want to be anymore.
5: Indeed. And so did I. Yes. Well, tell <laughs> us about it. Oh, I start my story often by saying that um, I feel that there's no reason why I became an alcoholic because I grew up in God's country and I had a lot of advantages, uh, never lacked for food, um, never lacked for a wonderful roof over my house and a beautiful environment with very creative and, and uh, you know fairly well-to-do parents. However, um, I inherited workaholism as well as alcoholism. And my parents worked all the time, and so I pretty much grew up, you know, like Topsy. Um, I pretty much entertained myself and became felt that I was responsible for everything that happened in my life and became very much of an isolationist. Uh, I grew up uh, first in, I was born in New York City, and then I grew up in Stone Ridge, New York, which is right near Woodstock, New York, upstate New York and uh, it's a really awesome place and i spent a lot of time by myself though and at about uh, 13 years old i started drinking because my parents used to travel a lot and they had started going back to new york city to work and my brother and i would hotwire the 53 chevy and drive around town and pretty much do whatever we wanted Um, basically there was no parental guidance for about a year it took my parents about a year to to discover that Uh, We had scared away the lady who was supposed to be taking care of us, and we're pretty much living without any parental guidance altogether. And um, so it took my parents about a year to figure out that we were living without parental guidance and uh, just kind of growing up wild. And um, so... I pretty much started pretty much just kind of doing whatever I wanted to do. And then my father would ground me and then I would go out again and it just, just kind of went back and forth and back and forth. My father and I had a love hate relationship. He's a very interesting, creative man, but, uh, he was also a little crazy. Um, I am a, you're talking
1: about my father now.
5: (laughs) I am an incest survivor. Mm. I don't know where he got the idea that it was okay to crawl in bed with me at 12 years old. Mm. And, uh, you know, have his way with me, so to speak. But it pretty much froze me up when it came to having relationships with, other, with the opposite sex. And uh, uh, it never has been successful for me. Uh, I have had success in other areas of my life, but not in relationships. Um, and it took me a long time to realize that it was just something that I should probably get a lot of help with and then let go. <laughs> so um, in my teen years, my parents had moved back to New York City. I went back to New York City with them. Um, and actually started, had already started drinking at 13 years old. When my parents were gone, we would have these wild parties at the house in the country, and that just kept on you know, through junior high school and high school. Uh, I went to a private school in New York City and um, study, started studying music. That was my first love and decided that I wanted to go away to music school, was not allowed to do that. So basically I stayed in the city you know, and met a lot of people and drank a lot and got in a lot of trouble. Um, and um, was actually not, how could I say it? It was an odd time. It was in the 60s when I went to high school and people weren't acknowledging the fact that there was a problem um, with drugs and alcohol with people who weren't uh, living in ghettos, you know, people who weren't financially challenged. And yet my best friend jumped off a window, you know, jumped off a five-story building because he was drunk out of his mind and decided, you know, he couldn't stand being gay. And seven of my best friends died when I was 17 years old, and all of them were, were, had to do with violent deaths that were a result of drunks and alcohol. And I absolutely at that point decided that God was out to get us and I was next and so my drinking really took off at that point. Um, Drugs are part of my story. Um, I can't, it was, you know, the era. (laughs) We all smoked pot and and took psychedelics, and uh, I'm very fortunate that I lived through that era of my life. Um, I even, there was a certain period of time in my uh, late teens and early 20s when I actually did hard drugs, and uh, absolutely was astounded that I lived through it. Um, Had kind of a, spiritual experience at one point even before i got into the program though when i was in my early 20s and uh never did it again it's just something I, ha- I woke up one morning and realized that if i ever did this again i would be a junkie for the rest of my life mm. and uh and so i started seeking help at that point um basically at that time in my life where am i <laughs> we were um, back um working in new york city at this point i've graduated high school um i Worked for a year and then went to music school in Florida. Never understood that I would actually be back living here again. Uh, Drinking was always part of my life. I took a lot of drugs and I drank and I was very much of an isolationist. So I didn't learn how to create relationships in my life. Um, I loved going to music school, but I decided with fingers like these, there was no way I was going to be a concert pianist. So I went back to New York and, you know, got a job. You know, at this point, I kind of, got whatever kind of jobs I could get. I, I'm
1: going to just point out for people listening who can't see, she has normal fingers.
5: Oh, they're very small.
1: Well, they're just normal fingers. So piano fingers, you know, are about eight feet long and it's great. You can use one hand and play Ravel's right-handed concert. You yes. can play list. It's great. Yes. But if you have normal hands, good luck. Yeah. So that's what that means. Absolutely. Because you're imagining with these hands, it's like, oh my God, what is it? No, they're just normal hands.
5: They're just normal yeah. hands. But but they're actually even shorter than normal hands. So I, I um, ended up not having a successful experience at uh, at the music school that I went to. And so I went back to New York and, and my father insisted that I get a job. And I got a job and decided that I wanted to go to art school. And because uh, my parents were both artists, they were fine photographic illustrators and I was very intimidated by their work. But at one point I decided I wanted to go back to school go to school to study art and every year my father told me no you're not ready and so I just kept drinking and working and doing what I was doing going from one relationship to another and they were never very successful and I just felt totally lost I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life I wanted to do something creative but I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do but eventually I was able to save enough money to go to school paid my own tuition went to School of Visual Arts in New York. I don't know, am I allowed to say that?
1: <laughs> yes, I'm sure they'd love it.
5: <laughs> and uh, I loved painting. I fell in love with painting. I would rather paint than, uh, than buy lunch. And uh, you know, finished a program there uh, and you know, talk about the mistakes that we've made in life. Uh, I went to School of Visual Arts before it was an accredited college. And they have to invite you to a fourth year and then you go on to Yale to get a master's in art, fine art. And then once you get a master in fine art, they would give you your bachelor's retroactively. And I, they invited me back for my fourth year. And I said, no, because I was much more interested in hanging out in Soho and drinking and carrying on and not really working hard for what I wanted to get.
1: So, And I think when, <sighs> when any of us is trapped in a drinking lifestyle and it's still working, it's kind of glamorous it's kind of fun it's exciting uh, and you you'd already achieved what you thought was i'm already there so now i can have some fun it's still going to be there tomorrow and then we find out it's not still going to be there no. tomorrow <laughs> no.
5: No, absolutely not. Time went on and uh, I wasn't really getting anywhere and I was not very happy. I was having, you know, terrible relationships and living in wonderful spaces. Uh, I, I lived in this fabulous loft, uh, it had like 50 by 50 basketball court floors with a 12 by 20 foot, 20 foot skylight in the ceiling and plants. And, you know, I, I lived in an all silk parachute that was, you know, draped from the ceiling. And it, it was a great lifestyle, but it was, I felt empty inside. I couldn't have a decent relationship. I didn't know how to speak to people. I, I lied. I cheated. I stole. <laughs> I, I I did everything that you would not imagine that somebody in my position would do. And it just kept, it, it kept hurting more and more and more inside. And uh, eventually um, I ended up moving uh, further south out of Soho, Soho into another area and, uh, at the one time ended up working in wall street, which was kind of very odd, but it was a perfect job for me because I had decided that I wanted to learn how to fly and fly a plane, fly a plane. Yes. Yes. A small plane, a single engine plane. And I started taking flying lessons because, uh, my uncle, who's an aerial photographer had convinced my father to fly to Wichita with him to buy a plane. So he bought a plane and brought it back and we made a runway in front of my house in the country, not my house, my parents' house in the country and uh, so I decided that I wanted to learn how to fly. But um, I thought for sure that my parents would pay for it. And they said, absolutely not. You have to pay for it yourself. And
1: but they paid for the runway?
5: They paid for the runway. <laughs> so
1: <laughs> and, uh, I, I think what's fun about this It's is, ridiculous is well, what it is. It's ridiculous. And everyone has their own version of something like this. And also, when you think of women, you don't necessarily think of lying, cheating and stealing. And and we hear women in recovery all admitting that, just as men, I think, are more free to admit that because it's maybe more of a male characteristic, I suppose. But I think all the humans that end up um, having these intimate relationships with vodka bottles or scotch bottles or whatever and smoking this and that, you end up doing what everyone does because you're feeling out of control. So here you are, your parents have let you build a runway in front of your house, but they don't want to pay for the plane or the flying lessons. Um, you're having the sort of fantasy life that you want, but it's fueled by drugs, alcohol, and you've sort of sacrificed to put on the back burner the very thing that would be called your career that ultimately would be able to support this. Right. And now it's up to mommy and daddy. And they're like, no,
5: right. Basically it was no. So I started working three jobs to pay for my flying lessons and actually pulled it off. I quit drinking for an entire year because I tried to um, land one day with a hangover and it absolutely was proven to me that it was impossible to do so. I almost crashed us into the runway and I decided that I, I thought I better stop drinking for a while while I learned how to fly. And so I didn't drink for a year and uh, you have to study for ground school and the whole nine and go and do cross countries. And um, I'm very glad that I wasn't drinking because you put your life in your hands every time you get in an airplane. I learned some very valuable lessons then. One of them was to fly within my limitations. I actually have remembered that, you know, into my sobriety is that every day those limitations change and I have to reassess where I am. Um, and no sooner did I get my license than I hit the bar the very same day. And I had this little tradition that I, with myself, it had nothing to do with anybody else, but I used to get in my little Triumph TR6 and hit, put the accelerator to the floor and see how far I could go without having to take my foot off the gas pedal. I mean, this is after having consumed who knows how much alcohol throughout the entire evening. And uh, I thought that this was okay. Um,
1: (laughs) And we're going to pause here for a second. We're going to find out how that went. And then... You found the life you love, you got it back, you made a decision, you hit bottom, and how that took you and how we can all relate to that as we continue
2: here on Reboot Your Life. Hang on, your reboot reboots in a moment.
1: Did you know that Riverside Recovery of Tampa embodies a holistic approach to addiction treatment? With a team of compassionate professionals dedicated to guiding people towards lasting recovery, Riverside Recovery provides a comprehensive range of evidence-based therapies, counseling, and support services. Riverside Recovery understands that every person's journey is unique. Their personalized treatment plans are crafted with care, addressing the individual needs, challenges, and aspirations of each resident. Whether someone is navigating the early stages of recovery or seeking ongoing support, Riverside Recovery stands as a steadfast partner on the path to wellness. At Riverside, recovery is not only possible, but also a transformative journey towards a brighter, healthier future. Ask folks who've been there, people who have rediscovered their inherent worth and potential. Located in the serene surroundings of Tampa, Riverside is a peaceful retreat of tranquility conducive to self-reflection and healing. Riverside Recovery believes that the journey to recovery is not about just overcoming challenges, but also about discovering your own inner strength and resilience. The dedicated staff at Riverside Recovery are your compassionate companions on the road to recovery, and they recognize that true healing encompasses the mind, body, and spirit, all while comfortably addressing the many aspects of addiction. You can learn more at rrtampa.com. That's rrtampa.com, rrtampa.com, or call 1-800-871-5440. 800-871-5440. 800-871-5440.
2: Learn more at rrtampa.com. Reboot your life today. Life 2.0. It's your life and your reboot. It's Reboot Your Life with Carrie Harrison and Ashley Neal. And it
1: is Reboot Your Life. Carrie Harrison with you along with Ashley Neal. And we're talking right now to Willow. Occasionally, we get to bring you live humans in studio. We've got one with a Technicolor life right now named Willow. And Willow, you were telling us about you had taken up single-engine aircraft flying. Your parents built a runway, but they wouldn't pay for the lessons or the plane. And now you're flying in a plane. You're going to go, I guess, to South America, and you're going to hit your bottom. Your bottom is where you suddenly pivot and realize, I can't live like this anymore, So now you're in a plane, you're heading south.
5: Um, Yes, it took me quite a while to get there, and it was very hot. (laughs) And I flew in with a friend of mine in and out of the bush, uh, taking doctors, nurses, medical supplies. And uh, the relationship that I had, I thought it was the relationship of my life, and it turned out that it was a total disaster. Um, It devastated me emotionally. I did not have the tools to deal with it and I decided that after nine months working in the bush uh, doing illustrations for a group of indigenous people developing a written language it was really exciting I just I couldn't deal with the emotional uh, impact of the disastrous end of this relationship so I came back to the states and um, pretty much just drank myself into oblivion for quite some time eventually got a job in an advertising agency and was in another relationship where this individual was pretty much spending all of my money. I had a joint bank account and made. Uh, I really wasn't making any, you know, really well uh, thought out decisions about my life because I was drinking most of the time, even though I was working like a workaholic. And eventually, the I decided that I needed to do something and decided to try to get sober and. Um, got a full-time job with this agency and they, uh, they I hadn't paid taxes for eight years. <laughs> I had just not does. paid taxes for eight years. <laughs> I just didn't bother to pay taxes. I was working freelance. And so the government discovered that I hadn't been paying taxes for eight years and attached my income and left me with 90 bucks a month to figure out what to do with my life and to survive. And, uh, I had to do something and uh, you know, that something that I had to do was completely changed my entire life. I uh, had to reach out and ask for help and it was, you know, embarrassing and mortifying and had to ask my mother for, for money. My father had passed away and she was certainly not uh, not as wealthy as she used to be. And, but she helped me to the point where I was able to survive and get into the, you know, into uh, recovery. And uh, I, Got My first attempt at recovery was 1987 and I was still working at this advertising agency and about three months into the first my first attempt at recovery, I discovered that my art director was there and I was wondering why he had stopped throwing temper tantrums in the middle of the office <laughs> and found out that he had discovered uh, uh, sobriety as well. I you know, worked and stayed sober for nine years after that. Uh, going from one relationship to another because I still had no idea how to have relationships. I absolutely insisted that I was doing it myself. I I, uh, absolutely refused to have a higher power, uh, believe in a higher power, and always felt that I was responsible for fixing everything. And eventually moved to Florida in yet another disastrous relationship and relapsed. Uh, I decided that smoking pot was okay because it was organic. (laughs) (laughs) And...
1: Okay. Yeah.
5: <laughs> and, I mean that shows you where my head was at, even though I was yeah. still, I hadn't I had been drinking for nine years and yet I still wasn't sober. I still was not really, uh, relying on the principles, uh, you know, that we have to live by in sobriety. And, um, so anyway, I finally got back into the program again. didn't take me too long, but that was in 1999. And, yeah, you know, thank goodness I have 25 years in the program now. But I had to do some serious self-analysis. I had to get the help I needed about dealing with, you know, cr- you know, creating and maintaining uh, human relationships you know, mm-hmm. in this life. And uh, telling the truth to myself, you know, and not lying when the truth would serve me better. <laughs> And learning how to ask for help, it took me a long time to learn all those things. And I I searched and searched for a a spiritual path that worked for me. I went, it took me all the way to India and back again in 2012. And I have finally found something that works for me. I'm really happy that in sobriety... uh, you know, I don't have to have a God of somebody else's understanding. You know, I don't even have to have a God, really. I have to have understand that I am not in control of the outcome of things mm. and that others can help me, that it is OK to ask for help. It is OK to take advice. It is OK to break things down into manageable segments of time. Um and to work through the process of learning how to, how to stay sober one day at a time. I'm, I'm just really grateful for all the people who've helped me in my life. And I wouldn't give it up for anything. I, um, I finally got a job that was a stable job, working for a public broadcasting organization. I worked there for 19 years. And I'm really grateful that that was my venue for learning the lessons that life you know, has taught me. In sobriety, I stayed sober. Um, I got married I got divorced <laughs> I um, almost lost my job but then didn't lose my job I have suffered from disease I've had cancer twice I've recovered from it both times I uh, finally got to the point where I was actually willing to take vacations I kind of have recovered somewhat from my workaholism as well mm-hmm. I Loved my job because it was challenging and I learned new things all the time, every day. And I was able eventually to learn how to take life as it comes down the pike and not, uh, and not go back to drinking and drugging as, as the cr- crutch that it was for most of my life. And uh, I retired uh, about three and a half years ago. And I decided that I was going to go back to what my second love was. My first love was music and my second love was painting, but I went back to painting. I started taking online classes during COVID because I had to retire because of an illness. It wouldn't allow me to work anymore. Went through that recovered and uh, decided that I wanted to reconnect with the medium of my art and uh, went back to painting.
1: And so here you are now painting and expressing your art and Loving your life. You got am, back the life you loved.
5: I have gotten back the life I love. A
1: real success story. I want to thank you, Willow, for joining us today. It's great when we get to hear firsthand what people go through. Uh, I mean, you, it's amazing that you've survived it. People tell you that all the time. It's true. I get told the same thing. I haven't told my story yet here. Um, it's probably way too R rated somehow. <laughs> uh, but the fact that any of us survive, any of us survive is truly a miracle. And those of us who get that there is a way through, pick up the phone, call the numbers that are available. We hear about things and we actually take action. There is not only recovery, but joy and happiness. I want to thank you so much, Willow,
5: for joining us today. Thank you for having me here. Thank you for letting me tell my story.
4: Riverside Recovery of Tampa was created to offer state-of-the-art treatment options to people suffering from addiction. The model was developed to meet clients and their families where they are at and provide them with the tools and education needed so that they can achieve long-term recovery. No two people are the same and no two people have the same experience with addiction and it is for this reason that we tailor each treatment plan to the unique needs of each individual. Located alongside the Hillsborough River in the heart of Tampa, Riverside Recovery offers the full continuum of care and what that means is that we offer medical detoxification residential care day treatment intensive outpatient and outpatient levels of care the program at riverside is focused on high quality clinical care offered in a safe comfortable and serene environment Where everyone feels empowered to change the course of their lives the stigma that surrounds addiction continues to be high on the list of reasons that people do not seek help at riverside recovery we are working to change the narrative and empower people to recognize addiction as a disease not a moral failing we can recover and we do as evidenced by the thousands of people who have taken that courageous first step and asking for help
1: you can discover more at rrtampa.com that's rrtampa.com or reach out at 1-800-871-5440. That's 800-871-5440, 1-800-871-5440.
2: Learn more at rrtampa.com. Reboot your life today.